Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I'm your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Rand Fishkin, the co-founder of SparkToro and founder of Moz. In our conversation, we talk about the shift away from SEO-driven content, why you should be thinking about who will distribute your content first, and the power of being divisive. Let's jump right in. Moz came from super humble beginnings in the very beginning there back in 2004. I would love to know how has that played into your philosophy on content marketing and the effect that it can have on a business and a life, essentially? I think, I'm not sure I always do this perfectly, but I try to, even as you know, my career and profile has gotten a little bigger than it was back in the Moz days, stay humble about what I create and not assume that my historic knowledge or experience makes me smarter or better or more worth listening to than anyone else. And when I create, whether that's written content or presentation or a video, a podcast interview, whatever it is, try to operate from a place of not assuming that anyone should know anything about me or should take my words as gospel and retain that, hey, you still have to prove yourself right, to any given audience. And I think that there are unfortunately many creators and sort of, you know, influential people in the digital marketing world who do not take that approach. And when I encounter their content in that style, it doesn't resonate with me. So maybe I'm a reaction to that. Okay. I like that. Uh, So remaining humble is an excellent place to start with as it relates to the philosophy What role do you think that content can play in that growth of the business and more specifically putting out your point of view or creating a point of view for the world to see? I mean, I think a big part of this is differentiation, right? It is, Tommy, I I think that you and I have both been around. We were talking in the pre-interview that you were paying attention to Moz way back in 2006, which was only a few years after I started it. And it is, you know, definitely the case that Whereas in 2006 or 2008, even into 2010, you probably could create content and that alone differentiated you from most of your competition. That is no longer the case today. Creation is not even the minimum bar. It's just table stakes. The challenge of the current digital marketing environment is that you are constantly competing Even if you have no direct competitors for your product or service, you are competing for attention with tens of thousands of other publishers and creators, and quality is unlikely to be what differentiates you. Quantity is unlikely to be what differentiates you. Price is unlikely to be what differentiates you. And so you have to look for other tactics, positioning, uniqueness of character, uniqueness of the approach of the contents format of the message that you're sending, um, having a unique opinion, having uh, creating conflict, having, you know, being willing to make enemies. Those are things that can help separate you, but the other ones are not. Lean into that a little bit more. Talk about coming up with that unique voice And I think when we were talking about the piece that we're going to be looking at a little bit later today, I would love to know what are you doing or what have you done to sort of break through that noise and stop playing things by the numbers? Yeah, I think one is a aggressively idiosyncratic 
right? And take a position on an issue that is uncommon and then attempt to argue that, you know, position as best I can. I think there's also a sense of not being beholden to formula. So I have tricks and, you know, ways that I do content creation. And Amanda, who's, uh, who I think might be in the audience right now, she and I do a lot of the content stuff for SparkToro. And we are constantly giving each other feedback around the uniqueness of things versus falling into the trap of producing the same content that is already out there. I think what's hard about it is the digital marketing universe trains us to look for patterns. It trains us to look for elements that predict success, you know, correlation studies or analyses of whatever in SEO world, right? It's like title tags should be this long and content should be this many words and you should use this many images. And and those sorts of formula are very limiting. And I think they make people think in terms of a set of, you know, a, a sort of checklist of structures. And the frustrating part about that is there are elements of that that work, that are true, that you should do. And when it comes to what you should create and why you create it and who's going to resonate with it, those formula tend to work pretty badly. Um, a lot of that copycat methodology or, oh, I saw this technique on whatever, Moz's website or Search Engine Watch or Brian Dean's website or whatever. And like, oh, well, we use that formula and it works super great. That was definitely true in, you know, uh, that that sort of growing up decade of SEO and content. And it is not very true today. I That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, too, is you've got this really unique background right now where you've got the SEO background, which is where that by the numbers sort of world came into play. Yeah. Right. What is the definition? Let's talk about it. Like get 5,000 words in before you even get to the actual meat of the article. And now you've sort of pivoted into this world where it's more audience-based audience intelligence. That's what Spark Toro is all about. Tell me where you're like walking that line, right? Where are you marrying the two there? So... We definitely lean much more in the, I care about my audience. I care about what's going to resonate with them. I care about what they're going to share, what's going to help feel an emotion, um, what's going to help them think differently, do their work differently. I don't subscribe to a lot of the you know, previous things around SEO. <laughs> One of the weird things that is true of SparkTor is we get almost no search traffic because we don't create a lot of... Well, we don't create virtually any keyword-rich, keyword-targeted content, and thus we don't rank for nearly anything. Almost all of our search traffic is for branded terms, SparkToro, SparkToro Tool, you know, Rand Fishkin, that kind of thing. I think there are ways to marry up these two things, right? I think that you can be very thoughtful about your audience and you can build structures that... Uh, make content resonate with them. And you can also do keyword research and marry that together. And you can, you know, have your content be a certain amount of length and you can use H1s and H2s and you can, you know, make sure that you have a certain number of images and that there's, that you discuss the relevant topics that Google is going to consider in the content analysis. Those are all fine things. It's just not where I play anymore.
Right. Yeah, you've taken this position, which I really enjoy. You wrote an article about this a little while ago. It's who will amplify this and why? And I would love to learn a little bit more about the thought process behind that and where you're using that research to create that content for those specific people. Okay. Yeah. So thought process behind it is basically that in order to stand out on the modern web, I find that the key is you need to be amplified by other people, right? Essentially, if you are shouting your own content, unless you have a, you know, absolutely massive following, huge email list, tons and tons of followers, and you, you don't really need to grow uh, the audience that you're reaching, you need other people who have platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, their blogs, their email newsletters, their podcasts, you know, their video interviews of you, you basically need them to succeed. And so this idea of having a reason why other people and other publications will amplify your work is, I think, crucial. It's at the core of modern content marketing, modern content amplification, right? I don't know if you've had him on, but, but Ross Simmons talks about this all the time. You know, he's kind of the, the 1% creation, 99% distribution. And in my view, there's some truth to that, but I think that a huge part of distribution is the creation. You cannot just create the formulaic crap and then expect to work really hard to distribute it. That's just asking for pain, right? This is sort of like the classic marketer's dilemma of smearing lipstick on the pig, where you're taking a product that fundamentally doesn't resonate with the market and trying to force it down the throats of people who don't care. I think that is a terrible way to go versus having the product itself, in this case, your content, be something that is very attractive and appealing and emotionally resonant and ticks kind of all the boxes of what earns modern engagement. And that is not universal. It is different for every different audience. And this is why the audience research piece is so important. So when you talk about who will amplify this and why, it's important to earn amplification because otherwise your distribution is not going to get there. And it's important to design with amplification in mind, which is where the whole concept of the blog post comes from. And the who and what they care about is different in every different sector and for every different group. So there's not a whole lot of formula here, right? The formula is at the very strategic level, not at the tactical one. We're talking about who they are, what they care about. Why are people sharing content, right? You've, you wrote about this in the, you know, who will amplify this and why. What are your thoughts on why people share content? I think they share for a variety of reasons, but one of the biggest ones, you know, for better or worse is I already have a particular opinion on a topic and you have produced something that reinforces my opinion or belief about that topic. I think... Tom Hanks gets together with Hillary Clinton and they eat babies together. And, oh, here's this like piece from Zero Hedge on, you know, how Tom Hanks and Hillary Clinton, whatever. And so like, I will share that piece because it reinforces an existing belief of mine. And, and you can see right there, The Atlantic did, I think, publish some great work from researchers on Facebook who looked at kind of the top 500 pages that produce the most engaging content, right? Where the overwhelming majority of Facebook's, you know, engagement comes from. And yeah, I mean, a, a ton of that stuff is basically the, the elite users of Facebook are playing exactly that game, right? They produce 
emotionally triggering, usually along vectors like anger and hatred and division, because these are powerful, you know, human connectors. And I think many people look at that and they go, oh, well, that's politics. I hate that stuff. And obviously, I'm not going to do that for my brand. But you don't have to go into the political realm to look for this. You, you can find, for example, SparkToro takes the position of basically having a very strong set of enemies. We believe that the Facebook, Google, Duopoly, Amazon could be included in their triopoly around marketing, digital marketing. Those three companies have 80%, 90% of all digital marketing spend going through those three companies. And very frankly, we think that's totally wrong. We think that that uh, triopoly is essentially using the fact that they have dominant monopolistic practices and market position to make it look like the advertising dollars you spend with them are the absolute best ones. And they specifically make it difficult to impossible to track non-advertising through them sources. And so you get this universe that looks like how digital marketing looks, where we basically all throw our money at these companies. I think that is really, really problematic. And when we have conversations like that, it resonates with a lot of digital marketers. They're like, yeah, I do kind of hate giving all my money to them. Yeah, I hate that they get credit for all these conversions, which I know would have happened anyway. Yeah, I hate that they limit my creativity. And I hate that my boss and team and client doesn't invest in content marketing or PR or other organic opportunities or more serendipitous kinds of marketing that's long term, even though we know that would have a bigger impact because they can't perfectly track it back to their analytics. All of those frustrations that we know people in the field feel, not everyone, but many, create this sense of tension and these oppositional forces. And when we create content, you know, it's not whatever Tom Hanks and Hillary Clinton need babies. It is Facebook and Google are taking budget from your most effective marketing towards your most trackable marketing. And they're giving you more conversions you already would have gotten. And that can change the culture within a business entirely, the way that entire teams function. Yes. Yes. And no, you go ahead. I'm I'm just saying. Right, Tommy, when you hear that argument, you go, yes, I get it. I'm angry about that. I have emotional resonance with it. Yep. That's why it's a powerful conversation to have. And you can do the same thing, right? If you are, you know, whatever it is, I think for people in like crypto world, they create enemies out of the Federal Reserve Bank. Or if you are in the world of a lot of health food, creates this like enemy out of the sugar and carbohydrate industrial complex, right? And processed food world. If you are in travel world, there's folks who kind of create based on their unique thing. They make enemies of kinds of travel that they disagree with or staying home and doing nothing. Or even I've seen some folks do this, right? Where they're like, don't get a mortgage, a mortgage, right? You should, right. you should be on the road. Like the digital nomad lifestyle is a thing. There's lots of creators in that sort of world. So it can pay to have enemies and to, to create conflict, to use those, that emotional resonance in lots of ways. Well, I think something that's interesting too, I was just reading this piece. There was a study done a couple of years back and it was, they found, it was a satire site that said findings 
say that 60% of people don't read the post that they're commenting on, right? So this was a satire site. That was the headline. The article itself was a big block of lorem ipsum. And, you and then the comments. Imagine, and the comments were bonkers. So there was another study that was actually like the actual version of that study. And it found that it was like, instead of seven out of 10 people, like the, the fake study said, it was actually like six out of 10 people. And it's, it's like ridiculous. And it's because that headline itself is emotionally resonant. So this right? is another thing where, you know, I, we can get to the live edit at, at some point here and, and these, this article we want to talk about. But I think that in many, many cases, the piece of content that you are writing is vastly less important than the topic the title, the subheadline, and the sort of impact yeah. of the piece, the, the overall conclusion, the, the story that it's telling. The quality of that content maybe has some impact, but I think it's in the 20%. The length of the piece is in the 20%. The keywords in the URL, that's in the 20%. The you know number of words in the headline that you use and how you structure the headlines and the visuals, that's in the 20%. And 80% is just those three things. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like John Benini, he kind of talks about this every now and again, too, where it's like keywords don't give you the angle, right? Like keywords give you what people are searching for. It doesn't give you the angle. So Patrick says here in the questions, so when you find a SERP that has a lot of sameness, how are you thinking about bringing uniqueness in delivery versus being too unique so the big G doesn't get it? I try to be too unique so Google doesn't get it. Okay. And here's why this, this sounds very weird coming from like, wait, aren't you the founder of Moz and don't you care about SEO? No, I don't. I, I fundamentally, my philosophy around content, at least for SparkToro, and I would encourage other people to think about this as well, is I don't worry about my rankings. I don't worry about targeting keywords. I worry about impacting my business. And I worry about doing that through channels that I can own and control and often ones that are outside of search. I fundamentally believe that one of the best ways to build strength in your digital marketing universe and, and in the flywheel that you're the engine that, that's powering your marketing is not to be reliant, certainly not exclusively and hopefully very lightly on any single source. That includes Google. So yeah. When I see a SERP that is very samey and yada, 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 I might take some insight from, oh, people are searching for this. Maybe this topic is of interest. I'm going to write something about that potentially does not try to rank, but that does try to resonate very strongly with the audience I care about earning and earn amplification from them in the places where I know they pay attention, which for us primarily is... Twitter, LinkedIn, email lists, the universe of sort of podcasts and YouTube channels of digital marketing universe, and to a certain extent, some other social networks, occasionally Facebook and Instagram come into that. I can talk a little bit about TikTok because there is a digital marketing TikTok, but we have had bad experiences with it. It's, it's emerging for sure. Yeah. Um, Ryan Law actually talked about this. He's, um, he wrote an article about the second mover advantage. Of, uh, it was like a couple years back. And he was saying that looking at Google is now like looking into the night sky where stars from a thousand, you know, you're getting light from stars from a thousand years ago. And what worked 
back then, like HubSpot took over all the key phrases for marketing related yeah. stuff. So like, you know, and those positions don't change very much at all. I mean, I'm a, a ton of, I still get, for some reason, Moz has refused to take me off the list, you know, so I get the Google search console report and I'm like, yeah, man, they're getting millions of search visits a month, right? Like Moz's content is still one, two, three for like almost everything you search for around SEO. That's cool. That's great. Like, I'm happy for them, but I don't think you could reasonably do what we did even 10 times better with 10 times more effort and a team that's huge and the, the very best stuff and outrank those players, right? Like they have right. a decade long, two decade long head start. They have all of the built-in advantages that that confers. Google likes to rank content whose brands are well-known and recognized and trusted and liked and paid attention to by people. In 10 years, I hope SparkToro will be in a position where our brand is so well-known and well-liked that there are 100 times more people searching every day for SparkToro than there are people searching for audience research. Yeah, that I was just... I was saying this recently, too. It's like people make decisions like people sleep on direct traffic because it's not measurable. Exactly what you're talking about. People make decisions in Slack channels and in email lists, which you can't measure. You can't see that. So this emotionally resonant thing is like, I love it. I love it. I love that's where you're at now. What does that process look like for you? What's that research process look like when you're finding out what's going to resonate and how is that infusing itself into the actual like brain to fingertips? Yeah. So th things that we care a lot about, Amanda and I care a lot about are what is our audience talking about? What problems are they encountering? What are they thinking when they encounter those problems? Basically, it's, it's sort of the, it's a little bit like customer journey, but, but it's not necessarily customer centric. It is more audience centric. So for example, someone is learning digital marketing they're coming up in the world of our field and they're being exposed to various channels, putting out a counterfactual and unique piece that speaks to some of the topics that they might be learning about or that they already have preconceived notions about, but that are emotionally resonant and maybe make some enemies that works really well. Right. Then, and, and you can see that with, you know, who will amplify us and why is, is a great example of that. You know what? If you go to the SparkToro blog and you just scroll through the last 20 posts, you can see exactly what we're talking about here in virtually every one of them. I love it. More recently, you're talking about episodic content too. And you've always been a big fan of having content that builds off of itself. How is that like once you find the audience and what's working with them, how are you then doubling down on that? Yeah. I mean, the goal here is basically. If you think about and the reasons why a television show, a Netflix show, for example, is successful, a lot of it is not the first day that episode one comes out, the fan base is huge and they all love it and think it's great. That's, that's not it at all, right? What happens is Netflix will take a show. We, we could talk about Amazon or Hulu or HBO or anybody. They take a show, they will launch it, and they know that slowly over time, the idea is that the show's audience should show growth. So maybe, Tommy, you take a chance on, I don't know, some new TV show on Hulu, and you're like, hey, I, you know, uh, Rand's really into I don't know, Italian cooking. I, I bet he'd like this show. Hey, Rand, have you seen this show that's on Hulu? Da, da, da. Oh, no, I haven't. I'll go check it out. And then Hulu's analytics are basically looking for, does the show organically over time build up more and more of an audience to the people who were watching 
you know, episode one through five, do most of them stick around for six through 10 and season two and season three. And then as you get to season three, hopefully you're getting lots of new fans who are going back to season one and watching all of those. And now Hulu has benefited not only from each new episode that they put out, but from the back catalog. The back catalog has built the brand, it's built loyalty, it's built affinity, it's built engagement, it's gotten them subscribers, it will continue getting them subscribers for hopefully years and decades to come. That's how episodic content works too, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is Amanda and I produce office hours, right? This bi-weekly webinar series, we actually use Crowdcast for it, the same system that we're using here, right? Which we love. And you know, we're getting like 1,400 people on these webinars up from, I don't know, maybe 200, 250, 300, the first few episodes. So it's just amazing. And what's extraordinary about it is we take all of those, we publish them to YouTube, we have them in our you know back catalog that you can find on SparkToro as well. And it does the same thing. Someone references an old episode of Office Hour, someone watches that, then they subscribe because they want to see the new ones. And it builds up just like a great show does. It's squiggly. It's squiggly. And what a lot of people don't realize, too, is like this is something that sites like BuzzFeed have been doing for years, too, with their audience intelligence. And they learn about it and then they find the small segment of people and then keep building it around and test it out and then see what happens. I try to tell this to people sometimes where I'm like, Netflix, if you think about how much advertising Netflix does, like how much stuff have you discovered on Netflix through advertising versus word of mouth? And what's amazing is Netflix... A primary source of advertising is Netflix itself. Right. Right? They know that we are all, all of us subscribers are logging into the app to consume some content, and that is where and when they advertise other content to us and suggest things and recommend things and nudge us towards stuff, right? And and an email. I'm a subscriber to Netflix. Netflix will be like, hey, Rant, remember how you binge watched that terrible Witcher show last year? Season two is out. And I'm like, oh, no, you're not getting me this time. That show is garbage. But, you know, they saw that I saw it and they're and they're like, they're upset that it's, hey, it's been out for months. Like, why aren't you watching this? And I'm like, hey, man, same reason I'm not watching, you know, Cobra Kai season three. I think I think they did convince me to watch season two, which was also terrible. And oh, man, those that poor guy cannot act. But it's still kind of fun, you know. <laughs> I'll give you Cobra Kai, but we're going to diverge on Witcher. Yeah, Patrick says you went too far on The Witcher one. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, it's true, though, but let's like, be real. That, that is not a quality television program, right? <laughs> you, I'm not saying you can't enjoy it. People enjoy terrible things all the time. Right. I, I like a Snickers bar. That's not a quality food right. item. But, you know, let's just recognize junk for what junk is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And divisiveness is, again, the name of the game, right? Something that's good is going to split the audience uh, regardless. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're. But, and this is this is actually really important on this point around episodic content and content in general. You do not need to appeal to everyone. In fact, I think that a ton of content marketers are either nudged or biased by their employers, their agencies, their teams, their clients, that they can't do these mildly, even mildly controversial things, that they can't turn off some segment of their audience. And I think that is dumb as heck. I think it is a superpower to be able to turn off a large segment of your audience so that you can really focus and get in and ingratiate yourself with another group. Uh, 
you take that power off the table, I think you really lose out. Dive into that a little bit more because Shlomo's asking, like, can you talk about conflict-driven content for large brands, large corporate brands? And I've got this experience myself here. They tend to shy away from controversy. Yes. Very, very true. Yes. And I think that's a wonderful thing because it gives startups an opportunity to take share away from them. So I hope, you know, this is not necessarily speaking to the, hey, you have a big corporate client and they're unwilling to take risks. I am not the person who's going to talk them into taking risks. What I'm going to tell them is, that's awesome. I hope you keep taking no risks so that your smaller competitors in the market can steal market share away from you bit by bit by, you know, essentially Airbnb would do things that Hilton and Marriott would never be willing to do, right? Just like Google was willing to do things that Yahoo was never willing to do. It's weird to say, but it's absolutely true. I think Slack was willing to do things Microsoft was never willing to do. And this is how you carve out a market sector for yourself is you find your people, your audience. You focus on them. You don't worry about 5 billion people. You worry about 1,000 people and then turning that into 2,000 and 10,000. Right. And it's death by a thousand cuts for the larger companies. I've worked with like both the large organizations, like the old established old guard, you know, and then within the startup space. And it's really interesting to see the difference between the company that's disrupting the market versus the one that's being disrupted. Mm, mm, Yeah. Like the fear that is in there. And I would say, Shlomo, that the biggest thing there is it's kind of a political question. It's more about the internal politics of a company how you would deal with something like that. And this goes a lot to basically how the executive team is rewarded and what they're rewarded for, right? So their incentives, their fears, their motivations are going to dictate a ton of this, right? I think, for example, with CEO of Moz, I was much more willing to be far riskier in in all kinds of behavior and you know growth tactics and, and marketing and all those kinds of things than, than subsequent leadership has been because they're sort of trying to preserve this thing that got built. They're like, okay, well, how do we, sure, we, we you know, we want to grow, growth is important, et cetera, et cetera, but like, ugh, we can't lose anything. Right. Yeah, I heard a phrase not too long ago, actually, it was a long time ago, early in my career, where it was, you want to simultaneously attract the right people and repel the wrong ones. <laughs> I love that so much. I love getting rid of people that I don't want in my net, right? Like if you are listening to this and you're like, is he making fun of QAnon? That's my whole life. Like, I don't want you in my world, right? I want you to go away and like be in your little Facebook hidey hole and not be part of my universe. And I think that's just as powerful as attracting the right people. Because when you when you turn off the wrong ones, you don't have to serve that customer segment. And that lets you... From a product standpoint, a marketing standpoint, a strategy and execution standpoint, a hiring and firing standpoint, it lets you do all the right kinds of things to get alignment in an organization. And when you make those walls too large, I don't think you can build an exceptional organization around that. Yeah, it's the content that's out in the world is reflective of what's going on internally. When I was at Shopify, someone was talking with Craig Miller on Twitter, talking about how he never really cared about brand. And that's not something that he ever invested in. But what he cared about was like investing in the company, the culture and everything else. And I can tell you that on the content team, we never had anything like brand guidelines dictating what it was that we did. 
trust they trusted us to do what we did best and that the culture itself would eke through in the content and i think that that's there's a whole another conversation to have around that um, yeah but i mean i love i love having some brand like guidelines not not as to restrict you but as to like show you this is who we are and this right. is who we're not and this is who we're after and this is who we're not i think those are helpful but yeah, you can take off the rails and let the team do it themselves and you'll get another interesting perspective, right? Right. Well, and Moz became very defined by its community, right? Like, yeah. you know, the voice of the company didn't just come from the company. It was from everybody. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's an interesting take there. Um, all right. So we're, <laughs> I'd love to get into having this whole like idea of positioning and uniqueness and all of that in mind, let's jump into the edit. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Rand edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash the cutting room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next one.